Welcome to An Amazingly Ordinary Life, the podcast that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the world of special needs. I'm Sherry Tharp, an autism mom and your host. Join me each week as we share our lives, build community, and redefine normal. This is An Amazingly Ordinary Life, Episode 2. Today we'll be talking with Carly Lobbs and her experience with her daughter's chronic brain tumor. She has an amazing story that will inspire you to always keep going even when the odds seem stacked against you. Hello, Carly. Thank you for joining me today. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you for being willing to come on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be part of the podcast. Why don't you start off by introducing yourself and your family and just give us an idea of who you are and what's going on? So as you said, my name is Carly Lobbs. I'm a wife and mom. My husband and I are from the Midwest United States, and we were born and raised here. We stay here, small town, rural America is where we feel at home, and that's where we're raising our kids. We met when we were still in college and got married very shortly after I graduated. So we've been together almost 20 years now, married almost 18. And we have four kids that we're raising together. Our oldest is our son and he's in high school. And then we have four daughters who are at various stages of grade school level. So we're really making that transition from being parents of little kids, being parents of big kids and all that that means. And the freedom of you know having a live-in babysitter now and being able to do all these things you couldn't do when they were younger. So it's really a fun stage of parenting that we're finally getting into at this point and enjoying. But a lot of that sweetness that we're experiencing now is because we can appreciate that because when they were younger, our life was very much overshadowed by our daughter's medical issues and special needs diagnosis. So We finally got to a point where a lot of that's under control. And so we can, you know, use what we've learned to appreciate where we are now. Go ahead and tell me about your daughter's diagnosis and her medical issues. So our daughter was diagnosed with a common form of childhood brain cancer when she was just a toddler. And our first sign that anything was wrong was when she was still a baby. She wasn't hitting those developmental milestones specifically those related to balance and coordination, like being able to stand independently or take steps. And so we start early intervention therapies, physical and occupational therapy for several months. And by the time she was two years old, we just weren't making any progress really. And so it was clear that there was a deeper underlying issue there. And at that point we were referred to a pediatric neurologist and it took several months to get into that appointment as many can relate. And during that time, we looked for dietary reasons, inner ear issues, you know, the works, just trying to get to the bottom of why she couldn't get over what seemed like just this hurdle of balance because she was developmentally fine in every other area. And it just wasn't clear to us or those that we were working with in her care what was the issue. So finally, the day of that appointment came and the neurologist ordered an MRI to rule out what she was suspecting was a brain tumor. And we had never even considered at that point, you know, we had no idea. But unfortunately, the MRI did show a golf ball sized tumor in the back of her brain, which is the area that controls balance and coordination. So, you know, hindsight being what it is, it all kind of fell into place. So we heard those words, you know, your child has cancer. But actually, what was worse than the tumor itself was the fact that it was blocking her spinal fluid, which is created in our brain, from draining into her spinal column. So that meant that she had overwhelming amount of fluid in her brain, causing extreme pressure, hydrocephalus. 
And so by the time we had found it, because we believe she was born with this tumor and it's known to be very slow growing. So it just was gradually making these changes, building this pressure and her body was just adjusting to this. So there was no crisis moment where it declared itself that there's something really seriously wrong here. So by the time we found it, she was already in critical condition. And so we were immediately admitted to the ICU when she underwent surgery to place a drain to relieve that pressure. And after several days after that had kind of alleviated a little bit, they went in to try to get the tumor. And they were able to get 90% of it, but that 10% left behind has just been a thorn in our side ever since. Because this particular type of tumor really isn't curable unless you're able to remove it 100%. If it's left behind, it can very often be more of a chronic condition to be treated in order to be controlled and managed. And it can almost always be managed with treatment, basic cancer treatments such as chemotherapy, radiation, surgery, clinical trials, and all of that. But that means that many kids with this diagnosis end up needing repeated treatments over the course of many years. And of course, at that point, we didn't know what we were getting into, but that was the beginning of our very long story. Why weren't the doctors able to remove it all? Was it just in too sensitive an area? Yeah, so we were actually concerned it was right on the brainstem. But when they went in, that part just came away. But there was a portion that was kind of infiltrated into healthy tissue. Okay. And they were afraid of going in and removing it and causing her more damage. And as it was, after that surgery, she did suffer negative side effects. She lost her speech for several months. She lost strength in the right side of her body. We're still fighting getting all of that back years later. So in addition to what the tumor had already done to her balance, coordination, development, we then had all of that to rehabilitate after surgery was over. So because these tumors are slow growing, sometimes they can just stop and not do anything for a long time. So we were allowed to just wait and see what would happen after surgery. And during that time, we're focused on that rehabilitation, doing that weekly physical and occupational therapy. I think we actually bumped it up to like three times a week for a while there. And her speech came back relatively easily. She did get strength back, but you know, that fine motor just that took a really long time. So as it turned out, about nine months after that initial surgery, the tumor started changing and growing. And it was at that point we had to do our first chemotherapy protocol. And that was as brutal as you imagine chemotherapy to be, you know, losing the hair, losing appetite and weight, low blood counts, blood transfusions, the works. And so we did that until she actually developed an allergy to the chemotherapy, which is not uncommon with that particular protocol. But so at that point, we were allowed to, again, just kind of wait and see what would happen with the tumor. Would it stay stable from the treatment we'd already given? And so at this point, she was just about four years old. We had been doing therapy all along, but since we weren't getting treatment in the hospital, we moved her therapies out of the hospital setting and to a local pediatric therapy clinic, which was wonderful all in itself, but they had the added bonus of sharing their campus with an organization that provided hippotherapy or horseback riding therapy for those who aren't familiar with that term. And so when we signed up for therapy there, they offered, you know, do you want your daughter to participate in this? It's just 30 minutes a week on the back of a horse with their therapist doing these activities. And, you know, I'll tell you, I had absolutely no expectations. <laughs> I really thought at the time, I was like, you know, 
maybe she'll like the horses. Maybe she'll enjoy the horseback racing. I loved horses when I was a girl. And it happened to be covered by insurance at the time. So it made it easy to say yes. So I did. But gosh, it was actually just amazing, like miraculous, no exaggeration. We had been doing therapy all along, but she still could not stand independently. She still wasn't taking steps. So she was using a walker to go to school and all these things. And so two months after we started with the horseback riding therapy, the one thing that we changed, she took her first four steps. And I can still remember the moment. It's seared into my brain. And I just, I remember crying because I didn't know if those were the only steps I was ever going to see her take. And I just, I'll never forget that moment because it was just amazing. We'd waited so long to see that, you know. But as it turned out, just a couple months later, she was taking 20 steps. And after about six months of horseback riding therapy, she was taking 50 and she was walking around the gym. So at the time we've been doing this a year, she was walking completely independently over uneven surfaces. She went to school the next fall without her walker and never used it again. I'm a huge fan <laughs> of hippotherapy. Really, that's, that is just so impressive that that one change has made such a huge difference in her life. It really did. And that year was, of course, the most dramatic growth and change that we saw. But we continued with hippotherapy for years after that. And she just continued to make progress throughout that time. Yeah, I tell everybody about it. I'm a huge fan of it. And, you know, it's not just for those with physical disabilities or who necessarily need that core strength or muscle memory help. They use it for all different applications, for all different conditions. So I'm always telling anybody, I think, who, you know, maybe is seeing that plateau with their kids or they're not really seeing the results, just to you know, check it out, see if it's applicable to you. It's gaining more popularity and it's becoming more common. So, but that was hands down the therapy or intervention that made the biggest impact on that physical disability aspect of what we were dealing with. I'm glad you brought that up because there's a lot of people who probably don't even know that that's available or that's a thing that they could do. Right. And you really have to seek it out. Like I said, I think it's getting more common. We've definitely had more opportunities for that in our area, but it's not necessarily what they're going to be recommending to you post-surgery or or whatever. They're going to do the typical therapies. So it's something you have to look into a little bit more yourself, I think, these days. But definitely recommend it. So we did that for about a year. And so she was about five years old when she learned to walk and all of that that implied for her and her mobility and her quality of life. But unfortunately, even though we weren't seeing any signs of it, her next scan showed that the tumor was growing again. And so at that point, they wanted to do another surgery. And we were, of course, just devastated because she had just made this huge, huge change. And after what had happened to our other surgery, we knew it was very possible we would just lose all of that. So we were very proactive in seeking out just the right surgeon who was well-known for going in and getting as much tumor as he could, because if we were going in again, this is most likely our last chance. If we were going to put her through it, we wanted to be as aggressive as we could, but we also wanted someone who was known for keeping his patients intact as well. So we found him, we went halfway across the country for him, and we had the best outcome we could have hoped for. Scans appeared to show that they had gotten all visible tumor, and she came out of surgery the same way she went in. You know, we were very hopeful coming home that maybe finally we got ahead of this thing. But <laughs> there's always the bias. Our story, right? Um, the next scan, just a couple months later, showed that the tumor was back, had infiltrated the surgical area, was in multiple spots at this point. And so that chemotherapy we had really been trying to avoid having to put her through again was our next step. And so we did another year of chemotherapy. And the goal, for her condition is 
just to keep the cancer, the tumor under control. You don't want it to change or to grow. You're not expecting to see it shrink or to go away. If you get that happens, that's kind of a bonus expectation. So we weren't going into this thinking we're going to get rid of this thing. We knew this was maintenance. And she did really well with that chemotherapy. It was much easier to manage. But at the end of the year, you know, we were hoping that we would get a little bit of a break. We've been doing this like five years at that point, and we really needed a break. But again, there's that but. Next scan showed that it was growing again, and it probably had started growing before treatment had even ended. So that was pretty devastating because we couldn't just go back on that easy chemotherapy. We had to try something new. So we were pretty sure at that point chemotherapy wasn't going to do it. So we wanted to try something different. And, you know, as a parent, we research and we learn and we are on top of everything that's coming up. So I had been watching some new research on targeted gene therapies that were coming up and they were just really starting to get going at that point. They're much more common now. So we wanted to look into that. And so again, we went out of state, we found a research hospital that was providing the trials and we got her into a trial. And for the next 15 months, continued to travel out of state for her to get treatment. Let me ask you, you're going out of state to see these doctors and have treatments with having multiple children. And I mean, was the whole family traveling? Were you having to divide and conquer? Right, right. So we had two babies during chemotherapy both times. So it was definitely chaotic to manage. And I'll tell you, we probably would not have survived those years without my in-laws. So if we had to drop everything and run to the hospital, they were always there for us to leave our other children. Or if we had to go out of state overnight, they would take our other children. And sometimes we would take them with us if it was, you know, not a scan appointment and we weren't afraid we were getting bad news kind of a thing. And they'd stay at Ronald McDonald House with us. And it was like a little mini vacation sometimes. You know, you have to find fun where you can. But most of the time, it was my in-laws that were there to help support us with childcare and those types of things. It's so good that you had such a good support system. For anybody who doesn't know, explain how Ronald McDonald House works. Ronald McDonald House provides a place for families to spend the night or for parents to live and have a room and a place to shower. And oftentimes they'll provide meals. They'll have volunteers come in who are providing meals for you. So if your child's in the hospital, you know, if you have both parents there, one parent can go and take a nap or rest while the other parent stays. Or for us, we would go down for clinic appointments. So we would check in the night before and spend the night there, maybe have the meals there. And then we'd go to our appointments the next day if we had to stick around for results, we'd spend another night. If not, we would just check out. So it depends kind of where you are. Different houses run different ways, but we've had really great experiences there and highly recommend it. We always chose to have one of us with our daughter whenever we were inpatient, but yeah, they do ask for a small donation. It's like $10 a night, but otherwise everything, housekeeping in some of them is completely taken care of. It's almost like staying in a hotel. They take care of everything. And they have playrooms and they have resource rooms and libraries and programming. Sometimes a entertainment come in. You know, again, it, it varies. They're all over the world. But primarily in the Chicago area, they have an incredible Royal McDonald House system down there. We were very lucky to have that experience. We actually lived in one for about six weeks while our daughter was having radiation therapy. Our whole family moved down there and lived there for that time period. and. Uh, not sure how we would have survived it financially or just 
logistically without that opportunity. Right. So was that the next step for her after the chemo wasn't working? No. The radiation. So we did the clinical trial, right? And we did that for 15 months. And that actually was wonderful because that actually shrunk the tumor to almost nothing. And she had very few side effects, like so minimal. They were hardly worth mentioning, like her hair changed color, those kinds of side effects. Like it was nothing like therapy and it was just amazing. And we were just so hopeful and excited because it was working so well. And then about 15 months into a two-year protocol, it changed again. And we were just all, I mean, our team and everything was just so surprised. So at that point, it was chemotherapy. And we knew that that probably wasn't going to be long-term. So it was chemotherapy after chemotherapy. You know, it was probably what our future was going to look like. Or we could try radiation, more specifically proton radiation. And it was at that point, like the hardest decision we had ever had to make because, because her tumor is so slow growing, because the prognosis for these patients is so good, because as children, radiation can have really damaging effects to cognitive function and that it's not the preferred treatment. It's actually kind of like the last resort, big gun kind of thing. So we were really torn between, you know, do we take this risk? of radiation and what that could potentially do, or do we take the risk of years, potentially decades of chemotherapy and all that she's already been through. And everybody has to make the decisions based on their specific circumstances and their specific child. And for us, everything came together that radiation was a good option, like tumor type, how aggressive it had been. She was a good age. She kind of had just gone over that threshold of where it's less damaging. But if any of those things had been different, we probably would have chosen not to do radiation at that point. Because everything came together well, our team was on board with it. And we just felt like we had to give her this chance. I mean, it was the only thing that even had a chance of stopping this thing cold and giving her a real break, giving her a real chance at a childhood. So we felt like we had to take that chance. And as it turned out, it was the right decision for us. So yep, we lived for six weeks moved our family out of state so that she could have daily radiation treatments. And it was a little touch and go there a little bit afterwards because the tumor would change as a result of the radiation. So it was kind of an emotional roller coaster trying to figure out, did it work or did it not work? But it was about, I'd say nine months afterwards, it was solidly stable. And it has been that way now for almost, it'll be her five-year anniversary coming up at the end of the summer. So that was our big gun. And that was our answer. That's so yeah. good to hear. Was worth the risk. Absolutely for us. Yeah. In these last five years, we've also been blessed in that so far, she has not shown any significant medical side effects from all of that treatment that she's been on. We realistically know that that's probably going to be in the future. But for right now, she's healthy. She's doing well. We only have to follow up once a year. So we're enjoying our time away from hospitals and clinics. And so it's been really amazing. And on the disability side of things, we continued through all of this with physical and occupational therapy and the horseback riding therapy until about a couple of two years ago about when they told us that they didn't really think there was much more progress that she could make with the services, which just was amazing to us because we had never expected that she would ever stop. We thought that this was just something that she was always going to have to do to maintain where she was. But we decided just to pull back on everything, give her a chance to just be a normal kid for a while and see what would happen. 
you know, would she regress or would she maintain what she had? And so far she's maintained. And so we haven't had to pull back in any of those therapies yet. So that's been huge too. Again, quality of life issue just changed everything for our family and, and all of that. And we still, of course, have supports and things in place within the school system to help her with her education and, and all of those things. But really at this point, anyone who's just looking at her would never really imagine how extensive her medical history has been, which is huge. And she can pretty much keep up with her peers. She can walk, she can run, she can participate in gym class. She can, you know, be social and do all those things that for a long time, you know, we didn't know if she would be able to do those things. You know, we didn't know she could walk or she could go to school safely without an aid, or she would be able to live independently or have a family. And so those were big fears that at least now some of them have been answered and most of them we feel very optimistic about. So a huge blessing to finally be on this side of things because for a long time, it was just, you know, is this ever, ever going to end? What are her lingering issues that you're still having to deal with? Did she have anything like that? Yeah. So her balance is always going to be a little bit off, like certain activities that require more balance, like something like riding a bike or roller skating are probably never going to be things that she's going to be able to do. It's just too risky to even really try. Right. Not really worth that risk. And there's the impact too emotionally. I mean, she's had extensive medical trauma in her life from the time she was a baby. So we've definitely had to deal with anxiety and PTSD type issues. But those are getting better the older she gets. She does get more independent. She's got an incredible work ethic. It just blows me away. She really holds herself to a standard. And and when I want to let her off the hook, she won't let herself off the hook. So a lot of progress she's made really is to her credit and just the standard she holds for herself and wants for herself. Now she's getting older. So that's really impressive and really good to see. Academically, you know, she pushes herself there. So she holds her own. She'll always have the radiation impacted processing. That was the part of the brain that the radiation impacted in the lower back area. So her critical thinking and things like that were not in the area we radiated, which was one of the reasons we decided to do it. But so math and and memorization, things like that are a little bit more difficult. We always have to keep that in mind. And as a family, we have to adapt our activities we can't approach every situation as a family typically would. We have to keep in mind that she's not going to have the endurance or the physical ability to do what the rest of us can do. So we just keep that in mind when we're planning things like vacations or outings. But for the most part, I mean, compared to what we have experienced and what we know, this feels much, much lighter and much easier to to manage on a daily basis. So that's a lot easier to deal with than the uncertainty of the tumor and then all of her regression and everything for sure. Right. Was there a time that you just felt especially down or things felt really dark and heavy for you? It was those moments when, when we get the bad news. And there was a long time in the beginning, about the first five years, we didn't really have a lot of information on prognosis for her tumor type. And we knew that 10 years was pretty much guaranteed, but beyond that, we didn't really know what survivability was. So for those years, it was a lot of, you know, how much time do we have? Are we going to fight her whole life and end up losing her in the end? 
And then about five years in, there was a study was very positive in saying that these kids grow to adulthood. Most of them live very long lifespans. So our focus turned from preserving her life to preserving her quality of life, assuming that she was going to be here with us always and just assuming that until somebody told us otherwise, rather than kind of that ongoing grief, kind of preparing for the worst kind of feeling. Those are definitely the darker, darker times. And in the beginning too, when you just don't know, there's so much to know and no way to know it. As parents, I think almost all of us experience having people question our choices and second guess our decisions and make suggestions out of, you know, out of care and out of well-meaning motivations, but they're painful. And those experiences, I think, were among the most painful that we had to deal with, especially in those earlier years when there were so many unanswered questions. And we knew we didn't know everything, you know, but we were doing the best we could. And that's the thing. You can, you know what you know, and you do the best you can with what you have at the time. And you just can't have any regrets because that doesn't help anyone. So, yeah, the repeated trauma of it, just starting over every time the relapse happened, having to, once again, contemplate your child's mortality. There's nothing darker than that, knowing how fragile they are. And you have really no control over that. Those were the most painful times. Yeah, that is so difficult. I can't imagine having to go through that and you've come through it so well, at least that's how you present yourself anyway. <laughs> but it just the fact that you're sane and you're, you're here still yeah. to share is, is pretty impressive. Well, I will say, you know, I think that when things die down and you find stability and things start to feel more normal, people think that, oh, it's over now. It should be easier. You should just feel good now. And I found that those first few years after we kind of hit that stride were the toughest because it's coming out of that state of just trying to survive and then reacclimating yourself to all those things that were kind of shoved off to the side because they weren't a priority. And now all of a sudden they're, you know, right in your face demanding attention and your perspective really hasn't changed on how important they are, but they're still demanding your attention and you have to kind of reshift your mindset to, okay, well, it's, it's just a whole different approach to life. And yeah, it's like, you have a whole new reality now. Yeah. Yeah. And it was surprising how hard that was. Because your expectation is, oh, the news is good. We should be, should be easy now. And it's just not always that way. There's always a period of discomfort and adjustment. Especially having gone through disappointment so many times and hearing, thinking that it's going to be good news and then it's not. I would imagine it's hard to let that guard down. Yeah, definitely always kind of waiting for another shoe to drop. Always trusting or trying to trust that you can believe that this is going to last. And it it definitely took a few years before we could forget about it. Like we used to live three months in between scans and then that was six months and, and now it's once every year. So we can kind of distance ourselves from it. Now there's enough period of time, but it's always still in the back of your mind. And it probably always will be. And that's just kind of part of the, the deal. It is. That's kind of your normal now. I've said this before, but I hate to use the word normal in reference to kids because yes, that's their normal. Normal is just a relative term. It's just a matter of what you're doing every day 
to take care of your kid. And it might be taking them to soccer practice or ballet practice, right. or it might be taking them to course therapy or scans, or that's just, this is what you deal with every day on an ongoing basis. So that's right. your normal. Do you think that this experience has brought you and your husband closer together? Did it put a lot of strain on that relationship? Yeah, no, for us, it definitely brought us closer together. We've always really seen eye to eye on issues. So it was a blessing that when it came to making choices for our daughter, we almost always agreed immediately. You know, we listened to what the doctor said and almost always came to the same conclusion on our own. So there was never that friction of, you know, how best to do this. So that was a blessing. But also we had to be partners. We had to figure it out together. But the thing that for us, and again, it's not always possible for everyone, but my husband was very proactive in arranging his work schedule so that he would work longer days on non-clinic days so that he could be there. And he made it to I think, almost every appointment that she had. He was there for therapy appointments. So this was important that both of us were on top of what was going on with her care. We both had relationships with her care team and her therapist. You know, if one of us can be there, the other was just qualified to answer the enormous amount of questions they ask at every appointment, you know. So that was incredibly helpful to make sure that it didn't fall on any one person too much. You know, I was at home taking care of our kids on a daily basis. And he was at work making sure we were financially stable and had our medical benefits. But when it came to her care, we shared that responsibility of the decision-making and all of those things. So for us, that just solidified our team. I think it made her feel more secure having us both there for things. And it's exhausting. It's, it's hard. Um, just things like hospital appointments, I can remember a time after our daughter was in surgery and she was showing symptoms of something and they thought it was respiratory and they wanted to take her to get a test done. But we recognized that it was a result of pain. She was coping with pain and moving her would have caused her more pain. So we had to advocate and it was very hard and we had to have a united front to convince our doctors to say, you know, give her a little more medicine and see what happens before we start putting her through all these tests. And turned out we were right. It had been our second surgery. We'd seen it before. You know, we knew our kid best. But had I been by myself, would they have listened? Or would I have been as confident? So it's important to have that support from your partner and just keep the weight from being too heavy on anyone's shoulders. And not everybody can be at every appointment, but there are small ways that partners can make sure that they're not letting it all fall on one's shoulders. If it's just videotaping an appointment, letting your spouse watch it later, or just taking notes and making sure they're up to date, what happened, you know, those types of things, even just a little bit makes a big difference. Having a supportive partner who is there with you and on the same page with you, whether it's your spouse or another family member, somebody who is there on the same page with you is so important. And it just makes such a difference in being able to navigate everything. Absolutely. And it's important for our kids too, during that time when life is so unsettled and really scary at some points to know that marriages and those relationships, those partnerships are the foundation of your family and they create that place in that security that allows for your children to grow and to learn and to heal. And so it's important for them too to know that, you know, mom and dad are on the same page. You know, even if they're not married, just 
knowing that they have that communication and both of them are equally capable of taking care of me, they never have to worry about that insecurity, you know, so it's important for them to know that too. And oftentimes too, when you're going through all of this, for so many of us, there's just a lack of social life. So you don't have yeah. time to go out and, and nurture these friendships that will come in and take the time to get to know your child. The only people who tend to understand it is just you and your partner. Yeah, even people who are dealing with the exact same diagnosis and even similar circumstances, it's just going to be a different perspective because everybody's family dynamics, everybody's specific circumstances are going to vary enough that, you know, what's right for one is not going to be the same as what's right for the other. So it really has to be a case-by-case basis. People have to have that ability to decide for themselves what is the priority, what is the best way to deal with this, and just really have those choices respected by everyone in their support system because that's the best thing you can do to support a family is just get behind them and help make it easier for them. Amen to that. That's the best thing you could do to support a family right there. So tell me, what are some of your favorite moments now? What are the moments that bring you joy and that just put that deposit in your love bank? There's so many, it's hard to like really pick out. But I think the ones that make the most difference, and I'll give you an example. The other night, my family and I were just in the backyard and our daughters were just chasing each other around the yard. One of them had a squirt gun and it was you know, terrorizing the other two, but it was watching our daughter just run with a joy on her face, you know, and that moment, just recognizing that this was a moment we didn't know was ever going to be possible. Yeah. And it's just a simple moment. It's one that you typically take for granted, but it was, we just appreciated that much more because of the perspective our experience has given us. And there's so many moments like that. I mean, I could say that it was some big vacation or something that are the best moments, but those are the small moments where you just savor them because either we didn't have the opportunity to experience them for so long, or it's just reaffirming that we've made it or we've overcome what we weren't sure was overcomable. <laughs> yeah, those are precious and those are special. They really are. To be experiencing something that you weren't sure was ever even possible is mm -hmm. just amazing. So I have one more question for you before we wrap up here. To any families listening in who are just now starting on their journey with special needs issues, medical issues, anything like that, what advice or encouragement would you give to them? I think, and it goes back to a little bit to some of the things I've said, but I'd want them to just keep in mind that they are the expert. So much in the beginning, right? We don't know all the things that we need to know. So we're looking to the doctors and the therapists and the experts to tell us what we should do for our kids. And that's okay. I mean, it's important to take their advice into consideration, but I want parents to know that if something doesn't feel right to you in your gut, they should trust that. And if something does feel right to you, trust that too. Even if someone's telling you different, you know your child best and that knowledge is a critical piece in getting your child the care they need in the way that they need it. And so I would tell parents just to lean into that and trust yourself and know that you have everything you need to get your child the best care. I wish someone had told that to me in the beginning and that's definitely been a huge lesson that I've learned over the years. It's such an important lesson. And it took me a long time to learn that one. Again, I wish, <laughs> I wish I had known that earlier as well. 
Carly, thank you so much for being willing to come on here and share your story. Sounds like things are going really well and I just pray that she continues to have clear scans and hope she just takes the world by storm. Well, thank you so much. I'd like to thank everyone for listening today. You can find all the links and show notes for today's episode at anamazingtheordinarylife.com slash episode two. If you enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you left a review and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. As always, I'd love to hear your story. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact me at amazingtheordinarylife.com. And don't miss next week's episode where we'll be talking with Sarah Borgstead and her journey through foster care, adoption, and raising kids who have mental health issues, aggression, and severe trauma. We'll hear how the family has made it through the darkest of times and where they're at now. I hope you'll join me then.